Welcome back to Americanish, where we discuss love, culture, religion, and everything in between. My name is Mariam Waba. And I'm Adela Kochab, and we are the Daughters of Diaspora. Identity, culture, politics, nationalities, uh, so many things to talk about. Um, but this episode is dedicated to the lovely Adela. Um, so I want to dive right in. Um, Adela, you told me a little bit about your family background and, and where they come from, where you come from, who you are. Um, but can you give me a, a deeper look into um, your grandparents, your parents, who you are now? Um, who is Adela? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, so like I said um, in our earlier episodes, I'm originally from Syria and from Lebanon. Um, my mom's family is Lebanese. My dad's family is Syrian. But before that, they were in a small town. Now in Turkey, they still speak Arabic. They're called Kilis. Um, back in the Ottoman Empire, everything was kind of all over the place. And they went from Kilis to Syria and from Syria to Mexico directly. Mm. My mom's family went from Syria to Lebanon and then from Lebanon through Canada to get to Mexico. Um, Lebanon was a French sphere of influence, so they grew up speaking French, so the transfer to Canada was not very difficult. And then to Mexico was learning everything over again. Um, my parents met in the Jewish community in Mexico. I was born there. Um, and my brother was too. And then we moved to the U.S. Um, I grew up in Deal, New Jersey. It's a small town full of Syrian Jews. Um, I went to a Syrian Jewish day school my entire life. I had Syrian Jewish friends. And then I went to college. And of all colleges, I decided to go to NYU. And NYU was a change. Um, I loved it. It was wonderful. But when I got there, I said, you know what? I'm not going to be the Jewish girl. I'm not mm. going to just do Jewish things. Um, I really wanted to branch out. And uh, one day I was walking through Washington Square Park and someone handed me an Israeli flag and like, I took it because I'm Jewish. And we got into a circle and I got into a circle. And then they started you know, talking about people who lost their lives in terror attacks in Israel that week, mm. one of them being my age, um, who I had a lot of mutual friends with. And I realized kind of that this could have been me moment. And I said, how did I go from, you know, a Jewish day school where Judaism was so part of my identity of my life to now not even knowing that someone my age lost their life on the bus. Right. Um, and in that moment, you know, I stood there with the flag singing Hatikva with total strangers. And I said, I'm not gonna look for a cause to fight for, you know, I have my cause and this is my people. And um, from that moment, I got involved in everything Jewish on campus. Right. And it kind of set the stage for the trajectory of the rest of my life. Um, I say it dramatically, I'm 25, but- um, Well, something very interesting happened during your time at NYU. Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, while, while I was on campus, there was a lot of rising sentiments against Israel. Um, my first two years on college campuses was, were very quiet, really nothing was going on. There was, of course, an anti-Israel group, there was a pro-Israel group, and everyone just kind of kept to themselves. Mm. And my junior year, everything shifted. And suddenly everything was about Israel-Palestine. I was studying the Middle Eastern politics as my major. I was taking Arabic. And for two years already, you know, these were, this is who I was in school until suddenly I became Adela the Zionist instead mm -hmm. of Adela everything that I am. Right. Um, but it started with BDS resolutions, which you'll see on a lot of campuses, the boycott of Israel. Then they started boycotting pro-Israel groups and there was a coalition of 53 groups boycotting my own. Wow. Um, and then professors signed on to BDS resolution, 70 professors. So you'd walk into a class knowing a professor is essentially boycotting you. And 
you know, as things started getting more and more intense, I started meeting with administrators. I was on student government at the time. And I started telling them, you know, Jewish students are starting to feel very uncomfortable. You know, something is coming. And they kept telling me I was overreacting and that nothing's happening and it's all in my mind. And um, there's something called Yom Hatzma'ut. It's Israel Independence Day. And leading up to Yom Hatzma'ut celebration, I went to the school and I said, we're about to have this big event in the middle of Washington Square. And I'm scared for student safety on both sides. Can we make sure that, you know, there's security of sorts? And the school just, again, told me I was overreacting. Mm. Um, at that event, one anti-Israel student came to the middle of the circle at the start, the way that the event was kicked off. He just took an Israeli flag and lit it on fire. He just mm. threw it on the ground. Um, later on, when we were singing Hatikva, which is the Israeli national anthem, another anti-Israel student I was actually in two classes with came to the center of the circle, grabbed the Jewish students, um, a girl, you know, able-bodied man, Jewish freshman uh, girl, um, grabbed her arm, started yelling, free Palestine. And, uh, you know, thank God, like, he was, they like circled him and got him out of the middle of the circle. Otherwise, I think everyone would have just pounced. Right. Uh, would not have been, would not have been nice. Uh, would not have been good for either side. And then um, they took our 10 foot Israeli flag, tore it to shreds, and hung it from trees and from lampposts. So you have this event that, you know, my mom comes to every year where you have Jewish students wrapped in Israeli flags singing their anthem, and you have all this energy. Trees are vibrating with it. And my mom usually looks out and, like, Every t the first time and the second time and the third time she was there, she cried with tears in her eyes mm. because she said, this is Judaism in the 21st century. Like seeing so many Jewish students just celebrating in a park publicly, where else can you see this? You don't see this in Mexico. Definitely don't see it in Syria. Mm. And it was a very emotional moment. And that year there were tears too, but for different reasons. Because instead we had our flag burned, hanging from trees and a Jewish girl physically assaulted. Um, at that point, NYPD stepped in. They made two arrests. And I went back to the school and I said, look, you can't tell me I'm overreacting. I've been meeting with you for months. There's something that you have to do about this. And they said, yeah, 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 you're right. But we're going to do it, you know, behind the scenes. Hmm. We don't want any narrative issues. So just, you know, trust us. We're going to do the right, you know, take actions. And I was like, okay, but I'm trusting you. You know, one of my students was assaulted under my watch. I was president of the pro-Israel group. Um, you can't tell me I'm overreacting. You can't just tell me you're going to do something because my community is scared and my community is angry mm. and we're hurting. And they told me that as long as I kept it out of the press, they would do something. Hmm. Um, so I complied, as I do. Uh, I really <laughs> did trust the school. I went back to my community and I told them I was trusting the school. Everyone told me I was naive. Um, Who's I everyone? Naive. Uh, the Jewish community at NYU. I, I mm. had weekly meetings with the members. Um, you know, I, I was in the position where I was on student government. I was representing Jewish students on student government. Um, I was president of the pro-Israel group. I was vice president of the Jewish sorority. I really was the representative of the Jewish community at NYU. They were always behind me. They were always there to support me. But at the same time, I'm the one that took the brunt of the force. Right. Um, so a lot of the times they wanted me to do things that I didn't necessarily want to do. So after the flag burning and everything, they're like, we need to do something drastic. And I said, no, let's trust the school. Let's let's not flip the table. Was that the first um, experience you've had where you felt like Jewish lives were in danger? Um, yes, I, I have to say, honestly, that was the first time I felt real fear. Right. Um, and there was there was another incident that same year um, mm -hmm. where, you know, I was about a week later um, at a student government meeting. And, you know, I started being surrounded by all these anti-Israel students who I'd known for the whole year, you know, on student government, we were working on important things like food insecurity. We were working on getting Metro cards for commuter students, like all these things that benefit the student experience. 
And then suddenly they started just focusing on this divisive issue that made so many students feel uncomfortable, that made so many students feel unsafe, that led to the assault of a Jewish girl, to the right. burning of our flag. Um, but they started, you know, one by one getting around me. And next thing I know, there's three rows of kids and they're all yelling disgusting things um, at me with their phones in my face, uh, saying things like, we're so glad you're proudly a Zionist and everyone knows you're a Zionist because just like Nazi officers, you can't hide from what you are. Hmm. And um, that night was very, very scary for me. Um, I'd never felt small before. I've always been, you know, pretty strong person. But that was the first time I really felt small. I, I don't know how long I was in that circle until I was pulled out. Wow. Can you, bef I, I want to get through the end of it. Um, and thank you for sharing. But I want, what is your definition of Zionism? Zionism is a Jewish right to self-determination. Um, Zionism is the right of the Jewish people to have their historic homeland and to live in it safely with uh, autonomy, which I think is something that every nation deserves. Um, I think that there's different kinds of anti-Semitism. There's anti-Semitism that's religious, which is the one that a lot of people can recognize, where it's Jews are fine as people, but not as Jews, and they should change their religion. That's what you see in the Spanish Inquisition. Mm. Then there's um, ethnic anti-Semitism, which is the easiest to recognize, which is that Jews are not fine as people. Um, that's what you saw in World War II with Hitler, where the solution is to eradicate them. And then you see national anti-Semitism, where it's like, Jews don't deserve a country. Hmm. Uh, Jews have a homeland. It's recognized as our homeland. If you are Christian, if you are Muslim, we all have the books of the Torah that recognize Israel as a Jewish homeland. And the way that you know countries are created, and of course this is a way, way lengthier topic, is by treaty or by war. And Israel had both. Right. The war not being by choice. Especially when there were exiled thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Jew Jewish people that had no place to be. Mm -hmm. um, and saying that Jews don't have a right to that, that Jews don't belong where Jews belong. You know, we, we talk about like the where are you really from question. And I talk about, well, you know, I'm Mexican and it's like, where are you from? And I say, well, you know, I'm actually Syrian Lebanese and I say, where are you really from? And I just have to say, I'm Jewish. So the back to where you came from, where is your homeland? That's... <laughs> That's the hard-hitting question because at the end of the day, I always say, you caught me, I'm Jewish. Right. As if not that it was something I was trying to hide, but you caught me in that I have really been wandering for mm -hmm. the last thousands of years. That's what our people have done because we've been displaced. We are the forever diaspora until we weren't. Yeah. And being told we don't have a right to be there, that's what national anti-Semitism is. And that's what a lot of people have difficulty recognizing. Um, I hope that... It point. does. And I ask because Zionism as a concept, as a term, the definition of it, the words that surround it, the uh, way that the public media, mainstream media says it, everybody's working with different definitions. Everybody's working on different terms and um, people ask you, are you a Zionist? And their definition of Zionism in their head is one thing and you mm -hmm. say yes and you're verbally agreeing to the contract that they made in their head but you have a different contract and definition in your head and there's so much misinformation about that um so i want to set the record straight on what zionism is to you but what also zionism is but can you pick up where you left off um with nyu yes of course um and we can definitely talk more about yeah. that um but, you know, at NYU, as things started getting worse, I really did trust the school. Mm. Um, and the school had the opportunity to really make changes. 
and instead they gave the anti-Israel hate group that had spent two years harassing us the president's award um, at NYU mm-hmm. within a calendar year of the physical assault. And when the award came out, I had some friends calling me saying, you know, what are we going to do about this award? Like, we should really do something. Hey, did you see the award? And I was just like, yeah, huh, typical NYU, typical NYU. Until someone called me and said, Adela, like, this is you. Like, you need to do something about this. Right. I told them, you know, my times, I dedicate four years of my life to this. Um, they said, can you at least get us a meeting with the vice president? I said, sure. I had been meeting with him almost every other week for months, so it shouldn't have been that difficult. But every time I called, he dodged my calls. Every administrator I had spoken to in the past dodged my calls. All of their secretaries dodged my calls. They kept mm-hmm. sending me to um, NYU's spokesperson. And I said, I'm not a member of the press. I'm a student. And they're like, yep, spokesperson. Um, and finally, I went to the vice president's office in person. And I sat outside his office. And his secretary was like, oh, he's very busy. I'm like, no, I'm going to sit until he comes out. She's like, sit on a chair. I said, I'm going to sit on the floor until he comes out. Mm-hmm. It took him about 45 minutes. But... When he finally came out, I was like, please, this award, my community, we're scared. And he was like, look, I don't have time. I'm very busy. I'm like, please, I just want to talk to you. He's like, how about the first week of May? And I was like, that's three months from now. Mm-hmm. And he said, the first week of May, we'll schedule it in and I'll meet with you. That was also the week of my graduation. And that's when I realized he doesn't want to make changes. The school never cared about making changes. They just cared about, you know, Adela graduates, there's no more problem. They promised me action if I keep things out of the press, and the action they gave was an award, saying you know how to get an award at NYU, how to be the presidential group at NYU. You pick a minority community, you harass them for two years, you post pictures of them on social media calling them fascist, you boycott them, you burn their flag, you assault their members, and then NYU will give you an award. That's what it was telling me. Yeah. Um, so when I walked out of his office, I made a very difficult decision. I spoke to a couple of lawyers, and I asked if I had a case against the school, And they told me no. (laughs) They said Title VI of the Civil Rights Act doesn't protect religion as a protected class. Uh, So religious students are not protected, which of course includes Judaism. And um, they told me it'd be very difficult, but to send them over what I had. And they said that I had the strongest case they had seen. They said, we don't think you're going to win, but if anything could get the foot in the door, we think it'll be your case. Are you ready to become the face for that? And I said, yes. So I hung up and I called my mom and I said, mom, I'm going to sue NYU for anti-Semitism. <laughs> and uh, she was like, huh? And I was like, yes. She was like, Are you sure. <laughs> what was her reaction? Genuinely. Um, so again, like we talked about, college was relatively new in my family. My brother had gone to college. I was the first girl in school. My mom went back when she was in her 30s. So she didn't really understand what it meant. I also didn't understand what it meant. Mm. Um, but she told me straight up, she said, are you sure? And I said, I can't imagine graduating without doing this. And she told me, I don't really understand, you know, you or this, but if you need my support, you have it. Um, You know, whatever you need, I'm here for you. Um, My lawyers, thank God, did everything pro bono, so I never needed the financial help. Um, But my mom was very supportive through it all. So was my brother. He was like my rock. And Mm -hmm. I moved forward with my lawsuit. Um, We did everything under the radar, and we decided to go to press one day in April. And that day, I get a phone call from the vice president of NYU to my phone, to my personal cell, 
and he was like, uh, you know, I'm reading some articles here, some lawsuit, uh, some Title VI, and I was like, yep, and he was like, can you come into my office? And I said, nope. Is it Very May? Very busy. Is it? <laughs> I said, first week of May. <laughs> first week of May. And when I walked in, you know, I didn't walk in saying my community's scared and, and this award and please. Instead, I walked in with a calendar and I said, here's every time I met with you over the last two years. I was sitting with you because I care about my school. I wanted to make changes. I'm not the kid with the megaphone. I'm an advocate, not an activist. Um, I'm not here to make noise. But if noise is the only thing you'll listen to, then that's what we'll have to do. Yeah. I wanted to go to NYU since I was in fourth grade. Um, if you told me that I was going to make headlines for suing my school, <laughs> like I applied to NYU D1. I went there for pre-college when I was in high school. I bled purple, essentially. And next thing I know, I'm suing my school. Mm. Um, I spent that whole summer making as much press as I could for my case because, again, my lawyers told me I likely wouldn't win. But it was more about the headline of Jewish student sues NYU for anti-Semitism. And uh, one day I got a call from a D.C. number, and it was from the White House. And um, the president invited me to speak at a conference about anti-Semitism and about my lawsuit. And I did. And within three days, President Trump signed an executive order to expand the definition of Title VI uh, to include Judaism as a protected class. That would be the first time that officially a religion is considered protected under Title VI. Now, whatever you think about the president, this is a huge step. Had a hijabi woman been harassed on a college campus for her religion, she would have to make the case that it was because of her ethnicity or nationality. She couldn't just say, this is Islamophobic and I'm being discriminated against for being a Muslim. Same thing with Jewish students. Yeah. So this was a huge step in the right direction, into a direction of protection, of equal protection under the law. It really is. And I, I want to sit in it for a sec because every religious minority, every religious group owes a big thank you to Adela for for being brave enough to do that and, and getting the result that you did for religion to it was mind boggling to me that that wasn't a protected class to begin with. But the fact that you went through all these steps and I'm sure it wasn't easy, like family wise, hitting the news, it wasn't easy be taking on this public figure when that, that's not necessarily what you were searching for. Um, and you did it. Thank you. Thank you. It, was, it wasn't easy, I have to say. I went through some very difficult days. Um, like I said, my family was phenomenal throughout all of it. If it wasn't for them, I, I don't think I would have really made it through. Social media was not very kind, and that's okay. Social media is never very kind. Um, but I have no regrets. Mm -hmm. You know, I look back and I really do think everyone ends up where they need to be. And I think that I was put in the position where I could make a difference. And, you know, when my mom called me, I told her I couldn't imagine graduating without doing this because no NYU student should go through what I went through. I had no idea it would end up making a national impact. You know, I did it for NYU students. And next thing I know, every religious student in the United States has that foot in the door for Title VI. Right. Um, and especially now, I feel like religion's being demonized. I think that every time that you say something like, I have a religious event to go to, like, oh, yeah, it's Shabbat, and I'm going to go home for dinner. They're like, oh, you're religious? And suddenly that becomes a whole entire topic. So um, that's what I decided to dedicate myself to. Um, right. I spent two years working and fighting anti-Semitism on college campuses. I worked on building bridges a lot. I spoke at interfaith rallies. And um, then I realized that change is made through the law. Mm. Activism is wonderful. And like I said, I'm not a born activist. I'm a born advocate. I was always on the diplomatic end of things. I was never the rah-rah megaphone. But 
Um, I was an activist for a little bit, and then I said it's time to go back to what I do best, which is the law. And now I'm very gladly in law school. Um, I'm at Yeshiva University, Cardoza School of Law. And um, I do have to say it's very different to go to a school that isn't just accommodating for Jewish students. Like, for example, if you have school on Yom Kippur, maybe they'll give you a recording of the class. Um, it's a school designed around Jewish students. And that's kind of the feeling I had the first time I was in Israel, where it's like, this is a country designed for me. Yeah. This is a school designed for me. I have to explain to no one it's Yom Kippur. I don't have to explain it's Passover. I don't have to explain. It's just something that's self-explanatory. Right? Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you said Um at that in in that moment was the first time you felt fear real fear as a jew um can you tell me if you if you have a moment where you realize you are different where you realize that you are jewish um but i think the biggest culture shock for me was realizing i was sephardic jewish can you break that down for me what is what is sephardic what is ashkenazi distinctions similarities so um, Ashkenazi Jews are the overwhelming majority of Jews in the United States. Um, they are from Europe. They're European Jews. So they're, um, w- most people that have Jewish friends have Ashkenazi Jewish friends. Um, they, unfortunately, are the ones that, for the most part, were displaced by the Holocaust. Um, they were the ones who were in the concentration camps. They were the ones also Ashkenazi Jews were in the Russian pogroms. So they had a very burdensome recent history. And when they came to the U.S., they really started rebuilding, and they have different styles of religion. So they're the ones that would have conservative or orthodox or, you know, reform, and they do have different denominations mm. when it comes to Ashkenazi Jews. Sephardic Jews are different. Sephardic Jews are originally from Spain and from the Middle East. They're Sephardic and Mizrahi. Nowadays, they're used more interchangeably. Mizrahi are Jews that were always in the Middle East. Sephardic uh, were in Spain, and then they moved to the Middle East after the Inquisition, but the communities largely merged. So even though I'm Syrian, I know I'm Sephardic and not Mizrahi. We originally came from Spain, but that was 700 years ago. So Sephardic, for the purpose of this, is Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews. Mm. Um, we did not go through the Holocaust. We were in the Middle East. We were in Syria minding our business. Um, uh, but then we started facing other issues, yeah. which, of course, has to do with rising Arab nationalism, ras- rising xenophobia, um, during the times of the, you know, Muslim rule of Spain, for example, we were dimmies and we were protected by, you know, the Muslim rule, but we were being prosecuted later, persecuted by the Christians. So it was just very funny how things change over time. But um, while we were in the Middle East, the Holocaust didn't affect a lot of Jews in the Middle East. Then you had the Iraqi Farhud, which was mm-hmm. essentially um, two days of killing and burning stores and looting against their Jewish neighbors and then everyone went along as if it never happened. In Egypt you had horrible years where Jews were being kicked out of their homes with whatever was on their backs and had to flee. You had periods where it was illegal for Jews to leave. They weren't given passports. My grandpa never had a Lebanese passport. You had other times where Jews were exiled and forced to leave. So Syrian, so Sephardic Jews have a very different history to deal with and it's a very different kind of oppression than what Ashkenazi Jews saw. But the moment I realized I was Sephardic was, you know, I grew up in the Sephardic Syrian school. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was little, we had to learn about the Holocaust because it's not something passed down by our grandparents. It's not something right. we went through. Yeah. So in third grade, they taught us about the Holocaust. And as an exercise, they had us make tally marks on um, whiteboards 
to try to get to the number six million, which of course we can't. So we got to maybe a couple thousand and you just see the numbers as a little kid and you're like, each one of these tally marks is the person who was killed. Right. Um, and, you know, I got home and I was telling my mom and I was like, mom, like, it's crazy. We learned about the Holocaust. And she was like, yeah, you know, it's a dark moment in history. And she was like, you know, being very mom-like about it. And I was like, yeah, you know, they killed six million Jews. And my mom said, yes. I said, yeah. And that's why I only have three Ashkenazi girls in my grade. And my mom's <laughs> like, no, hold up. And that was like the first Almost time. got it. Yeah. yeah, almost got it. But, you know, again, I went to a Syrian school. So I only had three Ashkenaz girls in my grade. That's kind of what I knew. Right. And then it wasn't until I really got to high school. That's when I understood, like, okay, like, we're a minority. And they're actually more of a, them than there are of us, even mm. though I only know Sephardic Jews. Then when I was in high school, I went to Model UN. And... um there were only six Sephardic schools. Like when I showed up and they said that we were to be eating Shabbat food, I show up to this conference with 400 different schools from Jewish people around the world. And, you know, there's only six like me. And mm -hmm. okay, that was a little bit odd. And then I was serving myself food and I'm seeing all these things I'd never really seen before, like cholent and kugel and gefilte fish. And I was like, I thought we were having Shabbat food. So where is the mechshi? Right. Are we not having lachmajin? <laughs> is there going to be kibbeh later? Like, is there maza? And I was very confused. And that's when I realized, oh, I'm an Arab Jew. My culture doesn't come from the Jewish culture of bagel and lox. Right. That's not mine. Yeah. My Jewish culture is mixed with Arab culture. That's how I grew up. Like, we knafe, we didn't have babka. Oh my God. I had uh, Ashkenazi food and Sephardic food when I was in Israel last. And that Ashkenazi food is rough, y'all. It's rough. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. continuing the suffering. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to end off with our expression. What's our expression of the week? Do you want to do something uh, Mexican this week? Uh, yeah, we could do a Mexican expression that I love. Um, this is one of my favorites. It's que oso, which translates into what bear. <laughs> Que oso? What does that mean? Que oso means how embarrassing. I'm sorry that I'm always really? around embarrassment and shame, yeah. but it seems to be what happens around my family. But que oso? What bear you would use when something very embarrassing happens? So, for That's example, really uh, someone did something dorky. Let's say you know they raised their hand in class, and as they were speaking, they projectile vomited, and it was <laughs> a whole entire thing. You'd say. No, que oso. Like, oh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, but you could also say it, again, easy in passing, something very normal. Like, um, I don't know. Like, again, someone wore something weird to a wedding. Like, she wore – it's not even to wear something weird, but someone did something embarrassing. Right. You'd just be like, ah, que oso, que oso. Right. Um, okay. I'm going to start using that. Yeah, que oso. What bear? What bear? What bear? I'm going to say it in know. English, though. I'm going <laughs> to – what bear? <laughs> Actually, we do that in my family all the really? time. Really? Um, we, we use Mexican expressions. Um, I don't want to double down, but my a second favorite is, like, a dork in Spanish. You can use the word pepino, which means a cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. what a cucumber who did an embarrassing thing. What bear? Wow. Que pepino que hizo un gran oso. Oh, you go off, girl. <laughs> Thank you, Adela. All right. Uh, that concludes this episode of Americanish. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. Um, we'll see you next week. See you next week.